0: Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast mini-series, History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing, and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sites of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness, and we will visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Eleanor Rosamund Barraclough, lecturer in environmental history at Bath Spa University. Eleanor has researched and lectured on Viking Age culture and history for many years. She's also a broadcaster and writer author of Beyond the Northlands, Viking Voyages and the Old Norse Sagas, published by Oxford University Press. Her next book, exploring the lives of ordinary people during the Viking Age, will be published by Profile in 2024. With her wide-reaching knowledge of the history and physical heritage of Oslo, Eleanor is the ideal guide to lead us around the city perched at the tip of its namesake fjord. Together, we'll explore its Viking origins, its medieval fortifications, its modern museums and its scenic hinterland. We'll also meet some of the characters who influenced the evolution of Oslo. Eleanor, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Who were the first people to inhabit the place that's now Oslo?
1: Well, to find evidence of the first people who lived in the Oslo region, you really have to head up the hill to Ekeberg, and that means Oak Mountain, which is in the southeast of the city. And most of us actually have have seen a glimpse of the extremely magnificent view of Oslofjord, the, the water's below Oslo and its islands from Eckeberg because that's probably the background to Edvard Munch's The Scream. And I think his sister was actually in a mental asylum at that point at the foot of Eckeberg. But scrolling back in time again, it's also art that provides us with the most Evidence of Oslo's earliest prehistoric inhabitants. And they lived there maybe 4,000, 5,000 years ago. And that's because they left carvings on the rocks. And most of those are the outlines of animals like deer and elk and birds. And they've got little straight lines inside their um their bodies and they might represent bones and there's also one much smaller i seem to remember a human figure and this tells us something about their lives you know these were the people who hunted and fished to survive they moved around between campsites and i think that one of their campsites has even been found nearby there's radiocarbon dating from the fire pits and i think that's how they try to date the rock carvings, because that dates from about 4,300 BC. And we know that that part of Oslo up on the hill continued to be inhabited over the millennia because we've also got some Bronze Age and Iron Age sites here too.
0: We have this period of, of settlement through um, through the Bronze Age. Written history, if you like, starts quite a lot later than that. And, and the people we know best from history from that part of the world were, of course, the Vikings. By the ninth century, we know that Vikings or Norsemen were setting out from this region to plunder and pillage, as popular culture would have it. What was happening during that period in what's now Norway and the Oslo area in particular?
1: Yeah. So, so it's really over the course of the eighth and ninth century, the Viking age, as we know it starts to gather steam, you know, this outward looking expansion from Scandinavia. And it's very much characterized by raiding, trading, invading, exploration, colonization, and so on. And within Norway, what we've got at this time is a gradual consolidation of power into the hands of a small number of increasingly dominant petty kings, as it were. And it's quite a shadowy picture. And we have to piece that picture together using later textual sources. So we've got Old Norse sagas written down in the 13th century in Iceland. We've also got archaeological evidence from the soil itself. And so when we're thinking about this period, ninth century, second half of the ninth century, one really important figure to think about is King Harald Fairhair. And he got that nickname Fairhair because according to the sagas, he swore never to comb his hair until he'd conquered all the petty kingdoms and brought all of Norway under his command. And so until he did so, the story goes, he was known as Harold Tanglehair, which isn't quite so catchy. And he's said to have ruled the whole of Norway from about 872 to 930. But when I say the whole of Norway, I don't mean the whole of modern day Norway. It's it's predominantly southern and coastal regions, so heading north up the coast. And this fragments again after his death. But Those are the textual sources and some of the most extraordinary archaeological sources from the Viking Age also come from 9th century Norway. And I've got to mention at least one of the the most famous. In fact, um, there's three of them, three for the price of one, in the Viking Ship Museum on the island of Bugdoi in Oslo. Although at the time we're recording this, I think it's closed and they're sort of jazzing it up and extending it. And it's going to reopen as the museum of the Viking Age. But the most extraordinary one of these, and it's rather famous, so people might have heard of it, is the Osserberg ship. And it's an enormous oak clinker-built ships, so clinker-built, those planks that sort of layer over each other heading up the side of the boat, and this burial of the ship happened. we can really date this very precisely because well we've got seasonal produce in the burial, but it happened in the late summer or the early autumn of eight thirty four a d and it was used as the burial place of two really high status women, and one was probably in her fifties, one was probably in her eighties, and for that time that really was extraordinary, and they were buried with so So much. I think it's four sleighs, a cart, there's bedposts carved with, I think, dragon heads in there, there's tapestries, there's silks, there's 15 sacrificed horses. I mean, who needs 15 sacrificed horses for the afterlife? You know, and there's four dogs, there's an ox. And so it's really hard to overestimate how socially important these women or perhaps at least one of these women, we can't rule out the possibility that the other one was her slave, her helper in some other way, how important they were within their community. Although we really don't know in what capacity. In the past, people assumed they were royal. In recent years, people have suggested they are magic practitioners. And I should say that although the ship is in Oslo, Together with two other ship burials in the museum, it's not from Oslo itself, but Osseberg is very close to Oslo. So if Oslo, if you think of it, is sort of at the head of the fjord, and if you go south towards the sea, then Osseberg, where the ship was found, was only fifty kilometres away.
0: So there clearly were settlements and groups of people in the Oslofjord at that time. When did the the place that we now call Oslo, when did that appear?
1: Well, again, here we really have to look to the sagas in the first instance, because officially Oslo gets founded slap bang in the middle of the eleventh century, and it's founded by King Harald Hardrada, or Harold like hard ruler, that same figure who will end up sort of dead on the battlefield at Stamford Bridge near York in 1066, killed by Harold Godwinson's army. This we know from Harold Saga Sigurdssonar, so the saga of Harold, the son of Sigurdr, and that's from the collection of the King Sagas, the Icelandic King Sagas known as Heimskringla, which means the circle of the world. And that's composed in 13th century Iceland again. And in that, the saga also explains why he founded it. So it's it's a chapter. So that starts, I can give you a little bit of the Old Norse if you like, Haraldur Konungur let reiser Kaupstad Oester i Oslo och sat oft, which means King Harald had a market town, that Kaup word, Kaupstad, built east in Oslo. And he stayed there often. And then it goes on to say, because it was a good place for getting supplies and the land surrounding it was very productive. And then the saga goes on to say, staying there was also very useful for guarding the lands of the Danes and for forays into Denmark. But just because Harald Hardrada officially founded Oslo, and that does seem likely, and the archaeological evidence as far as we have it backs that up, as you say, it doesn't mean that there weren't people here already. And for that, again, we need to turn to the archaeology. And one interesting site is in the vicinity of the medieval church of St. Clement's, which is also in the east of Oslo, in sort of the old town, as it were. Um, And there archaeologists found a very, very small handful of apparently Christian burials. There were a few more there, but radiocarbon dating was sort of, they initially found them in the seventies where it wasn't very sophisticated and they redid it, I think sort of 2007, something like that. And some of the dates got slightly less exciting with with more up to date radiocarbon dating. So I think it, I think it's literally three of these bodies that seem to have a date that's after one thousand AD but before ten fifty or so when Harold is meant to have officially founded the town. And actually, you can visit those areas still. So I mean, if you're into early medieval churches in Oslo. The place to go is Middle and the medieval park. It's in Gamlubion, which means the old town. And here you can find the stone ruins of St. Mary's Church and St. Clement's Church. And then there's a fortified royal residence. And there is a sort of circular defensive structure there, the stone walls, that do, I think, date back to Harold Hardrada's foundation. But the stone ruins of the churches are later, I think, their 12th century or so.
0: So at that time, you mentioned it was founded as a, as a market town, really, and presumably a place for for gathering and, and trading the produce that was grown in the surrounding lands. How did Oslo develop as far as we know over the the next few centuries?
1: Well, one thing to mention is is its defensive importance. But remember as well, you know, in that saga, if we're to believe it, it's like it also says, well, it was a great place to attack Denmark from. So the Norwegians are giving as good as they get. There's certainly prominence in church structures, it seems, in the development of Oslo in that moving into the later medieval period. Again, it, on the sort of on the other side of the road and slightly up the road from the medieval park, there's also Minneparken, which is the memorial park. That has some medieval ruins too. So you can see just the, the sheer scale of medieval ruins. So you've got St. Halvard's Cathedral, which is early 12th century. You've got St. Olaf's Monastery, which is late 12th century. Holy Cross Church, probably also 12th century. There's some really really rude runic graffiti associated with Holy Cross Church <laughs> like i mean genuinely to the point where i don't think i can repeat it on um, <laughs> on on a, such a such a classy podcast <laughs> but but yeah so you can see from these big building projects that as the town evolves the church stays prominent but at this point it's not the capital city and there are other towns royal related urban sites that are Equally, if not more important, to give one example is Bergen up the west coast. Bergen. I lived in there uh, in Bergen for a while. It never stops raining, but it's absolutely beautiful. So go visit. Go. That's that's a episode, a separate separate episode. But uh, take an umbrella if you go. Is all I'm going to say. But yeah. So slowly, slowly, Oslo seems to sort of gather strength as a as a powerful urban centre.
0: And you mentioned the conflict with Denmark. So clearly there were there was a lot of ill feeling between Norway and its neighbours at that point. What progressed in in that respect?
1: Yeah, so it's a mixed picture. It's not sometimes it is just pure ill feeling. Sometimes uh, you've you've got to remember people are on the move a lot at these times and people's identities aren't necessarily kind of nationally related as we might think of them today. You know, you come from you're an uplander. You're, you're you know you're not necessarily a Norwegian in that sense and so you might have so we've got we've got to sort of distinguish between that top level where yeah basically kings are fighting for power at that country level versus what's going on underneath as I said we can see, that sense of a little bit of of tussling between countries from Harald's saga, from that foundation. It's good for supplies, land is productive, good place to defend against the Danes, but also a good place to attack them from. And then we've always got this jostling of power between the Scandinavian countries. Um, At various points, one bit tends to be ruling another bit. Often someone's pretty cross about it. We see this, I mentioned Harold, but of course, you know he dies at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, ten sixty six, and there we're seeing the legacy of royal power that also involves various parts of the British Isles and indeed Ireland across the North Sea. King Knut, for example, he rules England from 1016. I think he gains Denmark in 1018. He completes his hat-trick with Norway in 1028. And then he rules them all as a North Sea empire until his death in 1035. So you can see there's a lot of jostling. Now, the first ruler who made Oslo their permanent residence was King Haakon Magnuson, and he ruled in the late 1200s and the early 1300s. And he started to build up the city's or the town's military development to defend the Oslofjord itself. I think actually it was a Norwegian at this point. It was a Norwegian noble called Alf Erlingsson. He was basically a bit of a pirate. He attacked Oslo in 1287. So as I say, it's not necessarily your your identity and your divisions aren't necessarily um dictated by the country that you happen to be living in. And this is when the Akershus castle and fortress starts to be built, and that you can very much see today down by the harbour and down by the fjord. Now, this fortress took a bit of a battering over the years. It was first besieged in 1308, so not very long at all by a Swedish prince called Eric. It stood firm. That was the first of many sieges, often by the Swedes, occasionally by the Danes, I think once by the Scots who were sort of in the pay of the Danes. So that place sees an awful lot of action over the years.
0: So we see Oslo as a capital, as a fortified area coming under a lot of attack. And as we move through the later Middle Ages, life in Norway and Oslo gets harder, doesn't it? in line with much of Europe, actually. Yeah,
1: absolutely that. Yeah, so 13th century, I think, is sometimes called the golden age of Norway. It's relatively peaceful. It's relatively prosperous. 14th century, not so much. So obviously we've got, in the middle of that century, we've got the Black Death. It reaches Norway in 1349. It kills something like somewhere between half the population, two thirds of the population, possibly. That's within a year And so we've got a complete shattering of communities and some degree of social breakdown, just as we see in other places. It also means there are fewer taxes for the crown. And so things get a little shaky. The other thing that happens, particularly in the 14th century, is the Hanseatic League takes control of quite a lot of Norwegian trade, or at least international Norwegian trade. So the Hanseatic League is a very powerful confederation of merchant guilds. It starts in North Germany and in Norway, its main centres were in Oslo and in Bergen. You can't really see many remains of that in Oslo, but you can certainly see some beautiful wooden houses that still exist in Bergen today on, uh, down on Bregen, the quay side. And from there, it, oh, it gets so complicated. Thing gets, things get really messy, politically speaking. So um, let's just, for all our sakes, skip to the end of that century, to the Kalmar Union of 1397. And the Kalmar Union unites Norway with Sweden and Denmark. And that's really through the power of Queen Margaret I of Denmark. So she's the daughter of King Valdemar IV of Denmark. And then she marries Halkon, another king of Norway, and Sweden. And when their heir Olaf dies, she adopts her great nephew, Eric of Pomerania. And from what I understand, one of the main impetuses of, of this union is to fight back against the power of the Hanseatic League, and in particular to stop their expansion into the Baltic. Since we're talking about Norway here, the outcome was that Oslo lost essentially its capital status because the Kalmar Union was very much oriented towards Denmark. And so Copenhagen is functioning at this time as its political and diplomatic capital.
0: And that loss of status clearly didn't do much for the country of Norway or for Oslo itself, did it? No,
1: no, really not. So it's it's not good times. So when the Kalmar Union finally collapses in 1536, I think, Norway is declared to be a danish province. Now that doesn't quite happen. It does actually end up keep being a kingdom, but it's very much in a union with Denmark and Denmark is very much the bigger player. And so some of the wars of the 16th and 17th century, although they're really between Sweden and Denmark, some of them are played out on Norwegian soil. Uh, We can pause for a minute. We've got up to the 17th century. We can pause for a minute in the year 1624, because this is a really big one for Oslo, because that August, the city burns. And this is the era of witch hunts. So one really, truly awful outcome of this fire is that five women are accused of causing the fire through their witchcraft. And actually, three of them are executed at the fortress of Akershus, which is built back in the early 1300s. Now, fires were nothing new. I mean, they never are in this period. So Oslo had been on fire. I think it's more than a dozen times already, give or take. But this time, King Christian IV of Denmark and Norway had it rebuilt. So if you remember when I was talking about the um, medieval foundation stones of these churches and the royal residence that you can see in Gamleby and the old Town, that's where Oslo really is. That's what they at that time think of as being Oslo. But King Christian sort of shifts the centre of the urban settlement closer to Akershus, in fact. and So down by the harbour, he renames it Christiania. He's a very modest sort of person. And if you're visiting Oslo, you can see a very beautiful, brightly painted yellow building in that part of the city called the Quadrant, because it's laid out like a square and that dates from that time. And in fact, as a historian, I've got really fond memories of that part of town, even though historically speaking, it's it's not so much my bag because right next door, if you end up visiting, go, there's a really lovely place for drinks next door. And that's where I used to go with a, a Norwegian history professor, friend of mine, Sverre Bagger. I should also say, if you want to know more about Norwegian history, dig out one of Sverre's books because he is sort of one of the absolute founders of Norwegian history.
0: For quite a long period, it seems, Norway and Oslo were having quite a torrid time. They they seem to be subjugated by neighbouring countries. They're burnt down. They're experiencing plague. When when does Oslo start to get its mojo back and how?
1: Well I suppose in a way it's it's how many countries start to get their mojo back. Um, it's in the nationalist grumblings and uprisings of the 19th century happening all over Europe. Uh, one important year is Pretty near the start of that 1814, where Denmark is defeated by Britain during the Napoleonic Wars. And this is a, a truly enormous blow for Denmark. And they're then forced to give Norway to Sweden in the treaty of kiel the norwegians are having none of it obviously and they declare norwegian independence on the 17th of may 1814 they name oslo as the capital unfortunately this is swiftly crushed by sweden but i have to say certain am i the 17th of may is still the big Constitution day in Norway there are parades all over the country. people dress up in their finest traditional clothes generally have a very lovely time. Oslo has the biggest parade and it's it's a parade of children so I think it's from oh, over a hundred schools. they march up through the city to the royal palace. I, I should say personally, I've never been to the one in Oslo. I've always managed to miss it, but I have spent some, some in Tromsø, about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle, and it's it's wonderful. One thing you'll hear a lot is the national anthem, which is "Javi Elska Detta landa, which means "Yes, we love this land." fun fact actually only became the official national anthem of Norway in 2019, but it's it's an important one because "Javi Elska Detta landa, yes, we love this land well, it's about as, as romantic as, as as we can imagine. And of course, it's actually composed in the middle of the 19th century, slap bang in this wave of nationalist feeling. And one final point to note here is that in the 19th century, we also see a Norwegian cultural renaissance, again, in common with much of Europe. I've already mentioned Edvard Munch, the um, artist who painted the screen. And there is a Munch museum down by Oslo's waterfront I, I should mention but we of course he's he's from that period we also might think of other important cultural icons from the 19th century from Norway such as Ibsen there's a museum in Oslo for him too in the last house I think that he lived in and it's on the road aptly named obviously not at the time he was there but Henrik Ibsensgarter although um, again yeah check out if whether the museum is is open if you want to visit because I think at some point it was closed.
0: So, we have this swell of, of nationalist sentiment. What did the city look like at that time during the 19th century? Obviously, the, the industrial revolution has, has really kicked off elsewhere. How did, how did that affect Oslo?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, yes, this is the era of industry in, in Oslo, just as it is in many other European cities. And if we're thinking about what it looks like, as is so often the case, the Industrial Revolution creates a few winners and a lot of losers, economically speaking. And it's interesting because in the case of Oslo, this division is really stark because there's a river that runs through the heart of the city down from the hills and it's called Akashelva. And what we see is essentially the division of the city between the wealthy, genteel West and the working class East and that still is something that, if you know about it, if you're walking around the city, you can very much feel today in the architecture. So, the West is pretty, yeah, is it's it's an extremely classy place, and you can see a lot of it sort of nineteenth-century vibes going on, very elegant buildings, townhouses, and then further east of the river, uh, you can still feel like an edgier vibe, a younger vibe, obviously. A lot more gentrified too, because where isn't. But it's notable that also this is where many of the more recent immigrant populations tend to gravitate to.
0: So during this period, you mentioned the attempt to declare independence or to gain independence on 17th May 1814. Norway's still being ruled by Sweden and presumably at this point Oslo was still Christiania, as it had been since the 17th century. When did Oslo finally become capital and become Oslo?
1: Well, so it, it officially gained independence, dependence, to, well, together with the rest of Norway, from Sweden in 1905. But it's not until the 1st of January 1925 that the city's name switched officially from Christiania to Oslo. Oslo. So, as I said, sort of Oslo up to that point had been the name of an eastern suburb of the city. It had been the city centre until the Great Fire. Christian IV orders the building of a new city, calls himself after it. It all shifts. Now, that didn't meet with universal approval. Nothing ever does. The newspaper's got thousands and thousands of signatures against it. And there's at that point a kind of melding of the various parts, various districts of the city into one entity, which is what we think of today as Oslo. And this really brings us up to the era of some really other exciting historical developments for Norway not least the era of polar exploration. And you can, if you visit, you can learn more about that from the Fram Museum, which is also on the island of Bugdoi together with the Viking Ship Museum as was and the snazzier, newer version as will be. And Fram sort of means Forward. It's the name of the ship that Frithjof Nansen used to try and get to the North Pole from 1893 to 1896. And he did this by intentionally freezing the vessel in pack ice and letting the, 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 the sea currents carry them on the ship north. He and the crew, they got further than anyone had ever got up to that point. What's wonderful is the museum is built around the ship. So the ship is actually inside. There's photos online um, where you see this, this pointy triangular building like a pyramid being constructed around this Arctic vessel. And this museum is dedicated to the history of polar exploration. And just because I have the biggest historical crush on Nansen possible i mean just look at pictures of him this is this isn't a man this is a god but he also represents an era of norwegian history where they're very much starting to turn their faces outwards towards the world so as well as being an explorer nansen was also incredibly politically active he argued very strongly for the end of norway's union with sweden in 1905 incidentally And then he becomes the Norwegian representative for London. He helps to draw up the treaty that cements Norway's independence. And then later on, after the First World War, so I think it's 1921, he gets appointed as the League of Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And so he works with displaced victims of the Russian Revolution, also of the Greco-Turkish War and the Armenian genocide. And then he gets awarded the Nobel Peace Prize so um, you just you've just got to think this is something that really may not have even really been conceivable in Norway's past this idea that you can stand on the international stage and make such noise and do so much good in your own terms like as a separate independent country i should also say nansen my favorite fact about nansen uh, he has a phd in the central nervous system of the hagfish. And um, the hagfish is they're also called slime eels. That gives you a sense of what they look like. They are horrifically. Unprepossessing, but there you go. He's uh, this is this is truly a Renaissance man.
0: He was a complete hero in every sense, and had the best facial hair of anybody so I've ever much. seen in history. He was oh. he was magnificent. So that that was a high point, really for for Oslo for Norway culturally and in terms of his work. The rest of the 20th century was a mixed bag, really, wasn't it?
1: It was, yeah. Well, World War II definitely a hard time for Oslo and also for the rest of Norway. So. Oslo gets invaded and occupied by the Nazis in 1940 and King Haakon he manages to escape to London where he continued to broadcast to the Norwegians throughout the war via the BBC World Service and the links between Norway and Britain were really strong. It was a, it was a natural place for King Holcomb to be, not least because his wife, Maud, was actually the daughter of King Edward Seventh, And I think they'd got married in Buckingham Palace. Back in Norway, it, I mean, it, it's an extraordinary story in so many ways. There is an enormous resistance movement and this took the form of armed resistance. So. Blowing up German warships. And then I talked about the connections with Britain, smuggling people back and forth across the North Sea via what they called the Shetland bus, you know, the the boats that were taking them through these mine infested, submarine infested waters um, to Shetland. That in itself is just the most extraordinary story. This resistance also took the form of civil disobedience. So, for example, there were students at the University of Oslo who wore paperclips as a symbol of solidarity, that idea of being bound together. The H7 monogram to represent support for King Halcon the Seventh also became very popular. And red garments too, such as Bobble hats. Imagine Nazis outlawed bobble hats, but, but that's what they did. I should say, if people are particularly interested in that period in history, Akashus Fortress. Again, it's home to the brilliant Norwegian Resistance Museum or um, Norway's Home Front Museum. Um, be a miraculous translation. And uh, you've got to look out for the fool's teeth. They were wired up. I think it was by a Norwegian prisoner of war in Poland, but he, he wired them up so they could pick up radio broadcast. I just, I love that fact.
0: That's wonderful. So Oslo and Norway emerged from the Second World War, should we say battered, but not defeated. How did the rest of the 20th century play out? Bring us up to date.
1: Good, Uh, really good. I mean, look at them now. You know, this is this is sort of a socialist utopia. Um, But obviously, there are problems. But it's tricky. You speak to I speak to my Norwegian friends, and the narrative that we get sort of outside Norway is very much Norway was pretty poor. Still, you know, up to the 70s would have discovered oil. Hooray! I honestly, I don't know enough about that period of history to, to really go through all the complexities of that. I don't know. Some some of my Norwegian friends really don't like that narrative. Others very much own it. Of course, that does provide an awful lot of of money to Norway, and it's really it's really a very exciting cultural hub. But also what you start to see now is Norwegians saying, well, do you know, we have made an awful lot of money from oil. We now need to think about how we can be part of the solution to the climate crisis. And so in a way, I'm quite interested more than the last few decades. I'm really interested to see what plays out over the coming years, because I have a sense that Norway could have a very, very exciting part to play and do a lot of good.
0: Well, Eleanor, you've uh, you've whisked us through a thousand years of history there very rapidly and colourfully and, and introduced us to some of the places and the people who've been important in the development of the city. Now I'd like to ask you to pick five sites in Oslo that each reveal something about the city's past that, that listeners should visit.
1: Yeah, see, this is so unfair. Five? I can't do five. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I may, I may sort of squeeze in a couple... You know, I can make a couple of little monstrous amalgamations here because that's the nice thing. You sort of go to one area and then you just keep finding history, you keep finding things to look at. So, okay, I'll try and take it chronologically. Uh I mentioned Ekeberg at the start with its rock carvings. And that really, really is such a good place to start. I was um living for a little bit in Oslo when Eyjafjallajökull, that big Icelandic volcano went up in 2010. And so my experience of that volcano was hiking up and down Ekeberg and just to be honest, having rather a lovely time and then getting into the city centre and watching ash fall onto the streets. It was all rather surreal. But Ekeberg, there's just so much to explore. You can walk, you can get there by tram. The rock carvings themselves don't take don't take very long to see. There's only a dozen or so. We're not talking, I don't know, the scale of prehistoric Norwegian rock carvings up in, say, Alta in the Arctic, for example. But When we're thinking about historical landscapes and topographies, this really is a biggie because this is where it all began. Eckerberg, I should say, one of my monstrous amalgamations, is also uh, very recently now home to the most extraordinary Eckerberg Sculpture Park, and these sculptures are female themed. They showcase work predominantly by or featuring women, and so come for the rock carvings, stay for the sculptures. So that's number one. Okay. So let's come forward in time. Well, obviously I'm going to recommend everything possible Viking related, but actually, well, okay. So obviously these places are going through a bit of a transition, but I can't not mention them because in whatever form they are in, if you can go see them, go see them. So obviously if you're listening to this, you do want to go do check out the current state of play before you try visit any of these places. Oslo, funnily enough, in my experience, isn't that brilliant for Viking Age history in situ. It's not like, I don't know, visiting Reykjavik, going straight to the archaeological remains of one of the first homesteads ever built by the settlers. So I'd recommend a visit to the Viking ships, if you can at all. And if not, there's plenty of Viking age stuff to see at the Historical Museum, which is in the middle of town near the Royal Palace. And there's also a good amount there about Sami history. So the Sami are an indigenous people who inhabited and inhabit large parts of Scandinavia, especially in the north. If I were giving you a historical guide to the city of Tromsø, you'd have heard an awful lot more about them by this point. But yes, So, so, so definitely that. Also, I don't know this, but as in, I haven't seen this myself. But I vaguely remember reading that they've now made rather a lovely exhibition of Viking age swords in in Oslo's international airport as well. So it's likely that if you come in that way, you'll you'll get a little bit of Viking history before you even even get into the city. So that's number two. Number three. Let's stay on Bygdøy, this island that the Viking Ship Museum is on, Fram Museum is on, there's Kontiki Museum as well. And even if the Viking Ship Museum isn't open, do go and visit the Norsk Folke Museum, uh, the Norwegian Folk Museum, which is utterly magical. And it shows... It shows how people lived through the centuries of Norwegian history. It's it's an open air museum. So it's got a large collection of historical buildings, not necessarily from Oslo itself, but built, well, brought and built from around the country. They've got a wooden stave church there that dates from around 1200 AD. But they've also got buildings all the way up to the present day. And these buildings show the evolution of Norwegian society from all sorts of angles and incorporating. All sorts of social strata. Also, I should say, as a professional historian, I judge all museums on the quality of their cafes and their gift shops, and the folk Museum is a complete winner on that front. Just for a cup of coffee, they're just really lovely places to be in. The Norwegians really know how to do cafes very well. So what's that? one one, two, three. Okay, so coming up to the 19th century. Right, this might sound like a bit of an art tool, but bear with me because I'd recommend a sculpture by Ellen Jakobsen called Fabrique Jentner, so the Factory Girls, commemorating, well, essentially the workers of the Industrial Revolution, but in this case, the women who worked in the textiles factories. This sculpture is on one of the bridges crossing Akerselva, the river that runs through Oslo. You remember I said, you know, one side posh, One side not posh, sort of essentially during the Industrial Revolution. And that's partly as well because there were lots of water powered factories during this period. So the river was really a hive of industrial activity. So I think I'd recommend two things here. If you have the stamina and the time, make your way up or down the length of the river because there's this beautiful path that runs alongside it and you'll discover all sorts of historical nuggets and blue plucks on the way. It is steep in places. I haven't done it for a few years, but I think it is wheelchair and buggy accessible. But um, yes, obviously check that too. And then related to that, is the Labour Museum. It's pretty new and it's set among the former industrial buildings that run or ran rather alongside the river. And it has things like an apartment to show how families would have lived, information about how workers fought for better rights, prominent members of those campaigns and so on. So then the fifth, which would be the Holman Collins Ski Museum. And It's at the foot of the enormous ski jump, which you can see lit up on the horizon of Oslo at night, up into the mountains, into the hills and mountains to the north. This museum covers 4,000 years of skiing history, everything from prehistoric rock carvings. I think there are Viking Age skis. There's equipment used by Nansen and Amundsen. I think it's such a clever idea because it uses a single artefact, you know, the ski, to cover a vast period of history. I think pretty much every period of history I've talked about today. It's completely fascinating. It also has a wonderful viewing platform up at the top, and you can stand there and look out over Oslo. Although I have to say, when I was there, it was Rather terrifyingly, I totally forgot about this till I started thinking about Holman Colin the last few days. It was hit by unexpected lightning when we were actually standing out on the platform. I should say, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a complete fool. It, there wasn't a thunderstorm going on. I wouldn't have been out on the platform. There wasn't any lightning. Um, it was very, very mild drizzle, and then suddenly, big explosion on the other. Thank God, on the other side of the. Um, platform and, and there was the lightning. So I got off very, very quickly and back into the, the museum, which is why for the good of all our health, we should just stick to history.
0: Indeed. And that's quite a comprehensive historical itinerary you've uh, pieced together there for, for listeners, which is great. Finally, could you share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to Oslo?
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is not necessarily going to come as a surprise to anyone who's been there or planning to make a trip and has started looking into it. Oslo is not cheap. So purely in practical terms, I'd consider buying the Oslo Pass because it gives you free access to many of the museums, free public transport. But I'd say, caveat to that, do check out what you're planning to see first because a lot of that is free itself, including many of the places I've mentioned here. Not a historical note, but in the spirit of not cheap, choose lunch cafes over evening restaurants. If you're hoping to eat out, if you want to drink alcohol, be prepared to nurse a beer for a very long time. But one thing I would say, if you do want to eat out or you just like sort of tramping around in nature, I can, I can't not recommend this place. It's Freugnesetern. So, um, it's up in the hills. It's spelled sort of like F-R-O-G-N-E-R. Uh, that's the place, Freuna, and then Setteren, S-E-T-E-R-E-N. It's up in the hills to the north of Oslo, not far from the Ski Museum. It looks out over the city and the fjord. Now, It's good for cake. It is good for coffee, but also it has historical significance in its own right. It's an old wooden building. It was built in the 1860s. It's carved with dragons and all sorts of twirls and twiddles, you know, all wood. It it basically looks like my idea of Valhalla, you know, the old Norse mythological afterlife where Odin's chosen warriors go. And it was built by one of the founders of the Norwegian Tourist Association. There was always the tradition from the beginning, from the 1860s, of welcoming travellers in so they could warm up and they could get something to eat. And yeah, today it's no different. The hills around are absolutely magical. You can hike, you can run, you can ski. I lived near them for a while. I've never, never been so fit in my entire life. I also, yeah, I, I, I once went ice bathing in a frozen lake um, pretty much by this cafe uh, for a BBC radio programme, although it was so cold that I couldn't even bring myself to enjoy the comforts of, of my very own Valhalla afterwards so I had to yeah it was tragic I can't tell you how much you should visit that place
0: that sounds suspiciously like you're sneaking in an extra site but uh, we'll let you get away <laughs> we'll let you get away with that Elena. it's
1: cake come on it's <laughs> cake and Valhalla what's not to like
0: <laughs> <laughs> wonderful That was Eleanor Rosamund Barraclough. Her latest book, Beyond the Northlands, Viking Voyages and the Old Norse Sagas, published by Oxford University Press, is available now. And look out for her next book, published by Profile, on the ordinary lives of people in the Viking Age next year. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.